Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Bob Ray, former premier of the province of Ontario, former uh, interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada just prior to Justin Trudeau. We had a a wide-ranging and I thought amazing conversation uh, about his life, his experience in in politics, sure, uh, and and as being now a a statesman uh, in in Canadian politics. Uh, But most importantly, I think, about his own experience with depression, what that was like for him as a first starting to experience it as a graduate student, what he learned from it, um, what he used for his his treatment and, and how it worked for him. Uh, and I particularly liked how it really seems to have informed his life ever since then. His, his, his struggle, his depression uh, seemed to have taught him a, a way of relating to people, of listening to people and, and feeling compassion for others, I think, that um, who knows, maybe he otherwise wouldn't have. So I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation uh, with Bob Ray. We do get into, the, uh, into politics, of course. I mean, how can you not? Uh, we talk a bit about the SNC-Lavalin uh, story that's been dominating Canadian news and politics for, for weeks now. Um, so I, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, here's my conversation on so-called normal with Bob Ray. So one of the ways that I like to start these with almost everybody uh, is to ask people to talk about themselves, and especially people who have had a lot said about them. <laughs> so who is Bob Ray? Can you tell me about Bob Ray? Uh, well, let's see. I'm the son of uh, my parents. My father was a diplomat. My mom was born in England. Uh, I grew up sort of all over the world uh, and came back to Canada to, uh, to go to university and then uh, went to law school. Eventually, I went to Oxford for a while. And then I came back and went to law school and then I went into politics. And uh, I've been in and out of public life and politics in Canada for mm. 40 years or so. 40 years. What, what drew yeah. you to politics originally? What, what was well, I was, al- I was always interested in it. As a yeah. kid, I was always interested in it. Always used to talk about it with my parents and friends. I guess I like a lot of people. I got my first sort of, my, my age, I, I was living in Washington for six years as a, mm-hmm. as a kid when I was eight years old until I was 14. Because of your dad's work? Yeah, because of my dad's work. And, uh, and so, you know, followed American politics. And that's, again, to, to date myself, uh, that's the time when uh, John Kennedy was elected president mm-hmm. in 1960. Did that have a big influence on you? Yeah, I think like a lot of people, watching Kennedy was was quite something and listening to his speeches. And, and uh, you know, it was sort of, I think it's fair to say that John Kennedy was sort of like the, the, the first modern president. You'd mm-hmm. say that was the first really modern political campaign. I mean, obviously, you know, other campaigns had had, uh, you know, speeches and all sorts of stuff. It was the mm-hmm. first real television campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, like everybody, I was caught up in it and caught up a bit in the, the Kennedy mythology, like sure. a lot of people at that time were. And you, you remember what you were doing? It's a cliche question, but what you were doing when he was assassinated? I was actually, at that point, I was. I, well, my parents moved to Switzerland in, in 1962 to Geneva, and I was sitting having dinner with um, a good buddy of mine, a, a guy I knew in school very well. We're listening to the to the television, watching TV and eating, mm. and uh, the news came on in uh, in French. And we weren't I didn't speak much French at that mm. time, and I wasn't quite sure I understood it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was. So how did that impact you? Horrible. It was well had a huge impact on me. 
I think it was, you know, for me, it was my first, uh, apart from, you know, my, my father's sister passing away, it was um, my Aunt Grace, it was uh, my first sort of experience of death. Both my grandfathers mm. died before I was born. So it was sort of made you realize how, how fragile. And I can remember the, the, the preacher at the big cathedral in Geneva saying, <clears throat> you know, we, we hang on to life by a single thread. Mm. And that those words have always stuck with me. In fact, I've used them a few times, um, and I think it's you know it's obviously true. But um, a lot of other experiences that I've had, um, my wife's parents were killed in a car accident. Uh, my brother died of cancer when he was thirty-two. Mm. Uh, a lot of things have happened since then that uh, make me realize and and make me feel at all times the fragility of things and also mm-hmm. how quickly things can change. Mm. I noticed, I think, that you've been tweeting about your, is it the same brother you've been tweeting about recently? Several times, I think. Yes. Well, um, uh, the, the, the reason for it was that uh, a doctor who, when, he, when my brother died, um, we, the, our family decided to set up an, uh, an award in his name, a research mm-hmm. award, uh, and really helped to fund research uh, in cancer. He died of leukemia, a lymphoma. Uh, and so uh, a, a doctor who um, received the award uh, was – there was an article in, in a medical magazine that I got sent on Twitter or something mm. and saying that, um, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd really appreciated the money and, and the funding that he received and, and that he was making a lot of progress in, uh, in the treatment of, uh, mm. of uh, lymphoma. Mm. These, these early experiences, I find grief – Death and grief, more than anything else, can put us in touch with our own vulnerability, certainly. Um, so how did that impact your political evolution early on in terms of, of becoming a progressive, you know, becoming NDP premier of, of Ontario? Uh, why not, not to say that all conservatives are angry, but why not go angry and conservative? Why go compassionate and progressive? Well, I've never, I've never been uh, attracted to the conservative side of the equation. Mm. With I guess with, with a little with a little exception, which I'll get to in a minute, and that is to do with you know the the, the powerful role that institutions play. I, mm. I'm not a revolutionary. I, mm. I don't like to see things destroyed if it can be avoided. Uh, and I like to build with what we have and improve on what we have and make what we have better mm-hmm. and not just throw it all away and pretend you can start all over again. And a lot of the work that I've done, a historian, watching, reading, I do a lot of reading still, uh, how things, uh, you know, people who claim to be revolutionaries. And I always used to joke about Mike Harris when he called himself the common sense revolutionary. And a lot of destruction was built into that. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of destruction is built into what Mr. Ford is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't like it. And um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, he didn't like me. And I mean, what I did and I don't like what he did. So it's, it's, it's the feeling is mutual. Mm-hmm. But well, and that's what I mean. Like, it seems like we, when we come to this crossroads, we can either tear things down uh, or build them up. Uh, and you've been dedicating your career, it seems, to building them up. Yeah, and it's because I, I guess I, because I do think that things are fragile and mm-hmm. that the trust we have in one another is fragile. The, um, the basic, I mean, the appeal of populism, which is basically built on distrust and mistrust, right. and uh, I think is something we have to be not just wary of, but I think we have to, you know, call it for what it is right. and, and deal with it when it emerges. And it's clear around the world that it's, a, that it's emerging and very... Yeah. 
in very difficult and sometimes very dangerous dangerous ways. So and that's it, been it, a that's been a consistent part of my, I guess my my views about politics and and yeah. uh, and life a lot. Historically, have you seen over the course of your career the pendulum swing this far toward populism and and conservatism, nationalism? Uh, in the past, or is this different in some way? Well, I mean, historically, yeah, you can say there have been times when it's happened, but certainly uh, since the '60s, it's it's the worst that I've seen mm. in Canada, and and not only in Canada but around the world. I mean, the the move to Brexit is, I think, it's just nuts. I mean, uh, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, I can understand. I mean, I I, I get I, I understand what's I think the underlying uh, anxiety that a lot of people feel about, you know, how change has not benefited them Mm. and how uh, the gap between uh, those who are doing well and those who are falling behind is is still very present. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think the answer is to tear down all all the structures that have given us so much advantages in terms of mobility and uh, openness to the world. And, Mm. you know, you can't really stop a lot of this process of technological change and other kinds of change, which have a have a big impact, and mm. I, and I think the the desire that some people have to sort of say, well, let's let's protect ourselves from this change, or mm. let's let's keep let's keep ourselves out of the change, is unrealistic. It's right. unachievable, and it's ultimately just taking us down a, a bunch of political rabbit holes. Right. During your time as uh, as premier of Ontario, what are some of the accomplishments uh, that really make you proud, that, that really were in line with your values? Well, we saved a lot of jobs. I mean, we were facing a tsunami of um, economic change and, and you know, we, there were a lot of industrial jobs lost, not to go become too kind of t- complicated about it. I mean, right. there was just, it was a, it was a real, a real burst of, of down, a real downturn in mm-hmm. the economy that started in late 89, 90, and then just kept spinning. And Ontario was at the heart of it. In that context, we saved a lot of jobs. I mean, we, we went into a lot of um, industrial disputes and, um, I mean, changes in the north of Ontario. Um, the de Havilland uh, business looked like it, it, it might, you know, be badly impacted by the decision of Boeing to sell the company. Uh, and so we moved in and um, offered to uh, partner with uh, with an industrial partner. It turned out to be Bombardier. Um, and we saved a lot of jobs. And and so I look at that as being very, uh, very positive. Uh, I look at what we did in terms of fighting racism, identifying the need for employment equity, uh, changes that we made in mental health, mm-hmm. um, listening to... Um, Patients, clients, understanding better uh, their needs, and and really, I think contributing to a much more positive um, attitude and atmosphere mm-hmm. there. You know, doing a lot in terms of the reform of uh, of healthcare, trying to improve it, mm-hmm. expand it. We expanded the tri- we created the Trillium Drug Program, and we 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 expanded it so that you know people facing long term chronic illnesses like AIDS, but mm-hmm. many others. Uh, would not be bankrupted by you know by that experience, and I think there's still a debate about pharmacare, which is still going on, which needs to sure. go on in our yeah. in our society. We were pioneers on housing and transit, and I really really regret that the changes that we made and the investments that we made as a government were stopped in their yeah. literally in their tracks well, uh, by the conservative that- government. 
it seems like you have a, a good humor about this because everybody likes to blame Bob Ray for things. But then, <laughs> you know, I think about I live for those uh, for listeners who who don't uh, know Toronto. I live on Eglinton Avenue, which is currently digging a new uh, uh, underground light rail system, uh, which I believe you had actually started years ago, but no, then was canceled yeah, after. No, but it was not only canceled, it, filled in with concrete. It was, filled with, it was filled in with concrete. <laughs> I mean, you look at it and you just say, "This is nuts." I mean, I mean, uh, sure. Look, spiteful. I mean. I, I I fully appreciate that not everybody <laughs> agrees with what we did sure. and some of the changes that we made or, uh, you know, we asked uh, public employees to, to, to take days off, which were eventually named after me. And the Ray days. As I say, no, no other, I always tell people, no other premiers had days named after them. Uh, but I think hey, it was- it's a, still young. There might be four days. I yet. think it was a better idea, frankly. I think it's better to uh, share- the sacrifice than right. to impose it on a particular section of the population. I right. mean, uh, what happened afterwards was a decimation of employment in the public sector, teachers, nurses, um, you know, people working in the public sector. And, and I, I didn't want to do that. And I was opposed to doing that. Yeah. But we also had to, had to save some money. We had, we had to get the province back on a, on a better financial direction. Right. And we certainly did that. Well, and, you know, healthcare is no small chunk of, of the province's budget or the federal budget. Huge. And and you've mentioned uh, mental health and some of the work that you did there in particular. The mental health care system, as in my experience as both a patient and later as an advocate, uh, works against people very often. It, it can make them worse, bouncing around in a system that doesn't meet their needs, right? Eventually, you feel hopeless and helpless because you see all these professionals and you expect them to help you, and they don't. You know, you must have heard this from from patients over the years. I've not only heard it, I've seen it. I yeah. mean, uh, I, I think mental health is uh, among the most difficult of uh, illnesses to 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 deal with. And, mm-hmm. and from a personal standpoint, I think it's mystifying why some things happen to you. And mm-hmm. and I think it's taken us a long time as a society over many many centuries. To um, to better understand that you know you're not being seized by witchcraft or mm. you know made crazy by you know some alien force, uh, it's an illness, mm. uh, and, and you know we're we're way behind uh, all around the world. We're globally way behind in understanding and learning how to treat um, this illness, which mm-hmm. takes many different forms, has many different manifestations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, I think, is um, – I think there are a couple of reasons why we've had such a hard time more recently uh, because a lot of the mystery and a lot of the, the kind of weird ideas about mental health have really started to recede. I think more and more people are beginning to understand that it's – first of all, it's extremely common. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental illness is, is not rare. It affects every family. Um, it affects every one of us in some way, shape, or form. There's, I think most people understand now there's kind of a, a spectrum of mental and spiritual wellness. Um, and there's lots of things that can happen to you that, that set you off mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the spectrum or get you, you know, going down a path that you don't necessarily want to go down. But and they get you stuck sometimes. Get you stuck. But yeah. I, think, I think the thing that, um, that, that I noticed that I've seen is, first of all, I think there's a sense that we don't know what, quote, the cure is. Mm. And so 
um, it's too difficult. And, you know, a lot of it is mental, not physical, um, supposedly. And so uh, there's not necessarily much that can be done about it. Right. And my friend David Goldblum, who's a psychiatrist and a, and a very and a good friend of mine, He's a great guy, yeah. points out uh, very effectively in in his latest book that you know there we've actually made a lot of progress mm-hmm. on on treating mental illness. Sure, we've actually come a long way compared to where we were twenty or thirty. People don't realize there's, years there's ago. very effective treatments out and, there. Exactly, and there are very effective ways. And I think that's what started you know the it, it gets better campaign yeah. and the other. Ways in which people are are trying to uh, really engage with the public because ultimately it's public opinion yeah. that will push governments to do more yeah. and spend more. Uh, and mental health is still in the back seat. So, yeah, I mean, I've I think for example where we have really fallen down is in childhood and adolescent treatment. Yeah, and. The fact is, if we get at it early and identify the the signs and signals early, yeah. uh, we can make a big difference. Sure. One of, the, we, one of the stats from the Mental Health Commission, I think, is, is something in the neighborhood of about 70% of adults who have a mental illness say it started, that they could identify the symptoms in childhood or Yeah, and if we, if we can get teachers and others to, to figure out better how, how to deal with it, yeah. um, how to identify it and yeah. how to see the signs of it, then you got to have treatment places and the problem is we don't have enough we don't have enough places where people can get treatment right so if you take something like adolescent residential care um, we're way behind and in the US they have a lot more but obviously it depends on whether or not you have insurance right. but at least you know 60 70% of Americans have some kind of insurance and they're more and actually in that area they're they're more likely to get the right kind of care mm-hmm. Than frankly than we are, right? And so, and it's recently actually been announced here in Ontario that um, that the uh, a limit on the number of times you can go to see your psychiatrist. Well, that's being proposed. I think being proposed. I think there's going to be a battle about all those ideas because I think they are. Again, that that is is I think speaks to a stereotype that the people who are going for psychotherapy or going to see a psychiatrist are somehow malingering. I used to do work in in workers' compensation years ago, and they used to talk about functional overlay, which was mm. sort of a fancy word for saying uh, this guy or this woman is faking it, or right. they're exaggerating symptoms, or they're, there's a psychological problem which is making them malinger and not right. get back to work. And that, I think, is is a very common stereotype about people who are uh, who are getting therapy. Right. I mean, you know, there are various kinds of therapy sure. and various kinds of treatment. Yeah. Well, um, and it also ignores the idea, too, that you can be going in for your weekly psychiatry appointments and getting your medication dose adjusted and all that. But if you're homeless and unemployed and, you know, you're, you're being abused at home and totally. all, there's all these other social factors, but it's going to hamper your that's, treatment. That's why I think everybody recognizes that in order to deal with mental health, you've got to deal with housing. You have to deal mm-hmm. with jobs. You have to deal with employment opportunities. You have to deal with training. And you have to fight marginalization, mm-hmm. which is what we have allowed to happen. And, you know, Mark, you'll know that uh, there was a, a big change in Ontario in the, in the 60s and 70s when, and, and through until, you know, the mid-80s, when there were large institutions which basically mm-hmm. warehoused a lot of people yes. who, who were seen to be too ill 
uh, you know, to be with their families. Right. Lunatic asylums, as yeah. they're often well, called. Well, you know, the, the, the CAMH evolution, which mm-hmm. we've now seen where, you know, the, now the new structures that are being built on Queen Street, you know, we, that was started in the 1990s. Yeah. And, and the key thing is to understand that, um, you know, when we went through the process of deinstitutionalizing, taking people out of institutions, uh, we didn't, as a society, we didn't see fit to invest more in, right. in, the, in the physical infrastructure of care and in the other ways of caring that are still required. Right. And, and now often people are in the streets or in prisons, 50% or more of the, the prison population. Absolutely right. And, and I've, I've done a fair bit of work in prisons over the last little while. And if you talk to uh, prison wardens, they will say to you, um, I'm, you know, one, one prison warden said to me, I'm running the biggest mental health institution in the province. Mm. And it was a very dramatic statement. But he said, look, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who are here because they have serious mental health issues. Yeah. And they were not identified in the trial or they were not sufficient to say, well, you know, you shouldn't be in that institution, be somewhere else. Right. But that's just one example of where, as a society, we're not doing enough to provide the kind of care and the kind of attention and the kind of understanding, the kind of compassion that's necessary to help people who uh, are going through um, an episode or a time or a period yeah. of, um, of of mental mental illness. And, yeah. and mental illness takes many forms. I mean, right. sometimes it's neurotic and depressive and anxious, and then it becomes more serious when when you get into the the world of of, uh, of schizophrenia and and right. uh, and, and and people who are really having a very very hard time coping with um, coping with their lives. Right. Well, and that's why it makes sense to have a tiered system that that can meet people where they are, right. rather than trying to cram everybody through the same narrow hallway. You know, Canada, uh, unlike the UK, does not have, generally speaking, publicly funded psychotherapy. No. Despite the fact that we know that it, it works just as well as medication for the large majority of mental health problems and, and illnesses. And you don't need to be a doctor to do psychotherapy. No. Right. Uh, so we do have a lot of reforms that need to happen. We do have a lot of people who are trained to counsel and trained to help and trained to intervene, uh, but there's no appropriate insurance to, to, fund, right. to fund them, and, right. and it's, it's all done privately. So people yeah. either pay for it with their private insurance, if they have private insurance that's good enough to do that, um, or they pay for it themselves somehow. Right. But uh, that's not good enough. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, when we compare, when we look at how the Europeans do it, um, they have a, a much broader base of insurance and a much broader base of, of people who are able to and licensed to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a kind of medicalization of the, of, of the treatment process, right. which makes it much harder for people to get access to not, treatment. Not very efficient either. No, it's a bad use of resources. And mm-hmm. the, I suppose, you know, the doctors would say, well, we, you know, we're, we're uncomfortable with letting non-medical people treat but the fact is you you don't you your social worker isn't going to be dispensing medication right well and they're probably actually better trained uh, to do psychotherapy yes. than a gp might be right that's exactly right now this this is also personal for you you've been open about your own experience with depression uh, for many years now how did that manifest for you what did that look like well it came upon me quite suddenly um, i was in my early 20s i was a a doctoral student I'd finished my MPhil at Oxford. 
growingly, I was feeling more anxious about what was I going to do and what was I going to write my thesis about. And, and you know, being a graduate student is a pretty lonely experience anyway. It's a tough time. And I found when I came, when I, I'd been traveling back and forth between Canada and the UK, and I can remember um, waking up in the UK, and it wasn't just jet lag, although I'm sure jet lag had something to do with it, um, with, an, with an overwhelming sense of anxiety mm. uh, and uncertainty and um, depression. Luckily, I was living with friends, and um, they were terrific and very, very kind and very uh, encouraging and, you know, um, helped me get to, you know, the kind of care that I needed. And I had a lot of good friends who helped me over the period of about a year, year and a half that it took for me to sort of get through the worst of it. But I, I've had, I've had, a, I've had a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say any dramatic recurrences, but I've had a couple of of moments when my brother died, for example, which sure. was about ten years later. Well, yeah, a little more than that, about fifteen years later. You know that I went through another another downturn a bit. But did you, I, did you I recognized at, it right away. Yeah. Did you worry at that point or, or did, you, did you distinguish at all between grief and depression and where the boundary was if, if you had both at the same time? Yeah. Uh, and I needed to talk to somebody. And luckily, uh, I talked – this was when I was in politics in, in Ontario. And I went to see a psychiatrist who, who had been the uh, head of mental health services at U of T when I was – a student mm. and I knew him not because I'd been going to see him professionally, but because I just he was this well-known guy around campus. Right, and I went to see him, and it was interesting to me that it was actually quite different from the earlier experience that I'd had, where I went into therapy and saw somebody three times a week, and mm, it was wow. you know, and and it was, <laughs> if I may say so, it was very English. It took a long time <laughs> to kind of get the emotional stuff, through, you know, through. childhood stuff, all and the rest Freudian, of it, everything. Did you, know, you lay on the yeah, couch? Yeah, did you have no, to do? no. Quite. We were on, we were in chairs looking at each other, but you know, and and it and I read a lot. I sure. mean, I you know I I you know he encouraged me to say, look, you're you know you're a, you you can read about all this stuff. You can identify. The, the symptoms and the markers and you can see when it's happening to you. So, mm. you know, work on this and work on that and break down the isolationism and break down some of the things that you're experiencing that everybody experiences and so right. you've got to learn how to cope with them. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because the last, as I said, the last sort of experience I had with a therapist was was um, in in the period just before, actually just before I became premier. Mm. Um, when after that experience, I needed another kind of therapy, but I, I coped on my own, uh, <laughs> you know, political therapy. But I think I think the one thing it did was it obviously increased my my own insight into mm. uh, you know what what I what what I was going through, what was this all about, right. and how to cope with that. Were you, and were you always open about it or did you worry, especially as you got into politics, that, that somebody might find out that you saw a therapist, for example? Stigma is very different now. I was very open about it and yeah. it, it made my parents very uncomfortable. In fact, really? my, yeah, my, my mother warned me. She said, be careful. Don't be too um, um, outgoing about it because, um, you know, it'll be used against you. Mm. Uh, was it ever used against you? Did never, you get a Dukakis kind never, of? No, never, never. And I mean, I don't. I've never actually talked about it with a colleague, saying, "You know, do you think that was a mistake or not a mistake?" Uh, I think. I think it was. I think it was helpful to me, and it's also been helpful 
to me to be able to say to other people, um, look, you're going through a bad patch and or you're, you know, you're going through and you're having something going on and it gets better and there are ways to cope with it and there's no shame in it and uh, you got to, you know, you got to get the help that you need when you need it. Yeah. Um, and I continue to do that. I mean, I continue to get asked by people saying, you know, do you, do you know anybody? I don't, I don't provide any, any therapy myself, but I certainly talk to people about why it's important to get the help right. you need yeah. and, and to take the time you need to get the help you need and to understand that I, I didn't take any medication and I, I don't even, I don't even know in the early seventies what, what was available. Mm. Um, but, uh, now I think there's a whole range of, of medications that can change and help people to Mm-hmm. manage and find the balance. I think the thing that takes over when you have severe depression and anxiety, which I did for a period of time, is that you, lo- you, you, you aren't yourself. You're not, you can't, you don't have the perspective that you need right. to kind of understand what you're going through. Right. And that's what leads to, uh, you know, very dark thoughts and thoughts of suicide and all that kind of thing, which, which you know, you really have to deal with upfront mm-hmm. and more quickly because... You know, that's how we lose people. Had you ever had thoughts of suicide in your experience? Yeah, yeah, but not for a long time. How did you deal with that? Talked to the doctor very directly about it and had, um, and had you know, he helped me with that. And, and I had friends who knew that I was feeling pretty bleak. Yeah. But uh, nothing that, you know, kind of took over for long yeah. periods of time. So how do you maintain your wellness now? I mean, it sounds like your experience actually gave you a lot of insight. What do you do now? Well, I try. I try to. I mean, the th- you know, it's just things you learn. I tried to uh, like myself more, push myself uh, a little less hard. Take which, a few more ray days for yourself. Uh, take a few more ray days. <laughs> um, try to uh, enjoy the moment mm-hmm. um, and enjoy, you know, the experience. Be you know, be more mindful of you know what's going on every second or every minute or whatever's going on. Mm. I do have a, tension to be, a, t- a tendency to become a little preoccupied and sometimes a little bit remote. And mm. uh, I know I have to watch that because it, 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 it does tend to lead to a bit more isolation. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I, 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 I went into politics um, uh, having gone through this experience and, and, you know, lived with a lot of criticism and a lot of, you know, attacks from all sides. Mm. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm active on Twitter now, so yeah. I still get a lot of, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> flack on Twitter. I so. guess so. I, I was reading though, and, uh, and I want to read this to you because I learned something uh, new today and I like learning new things. Uh, first of all, uh, that you've been mentioned in the same article in terms of leaders who have had mental illnesses as Lincoln, Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Roosevelt, and Bob Ray. <laughs> so I think, I think that's very nice. But also I was reading uh, from an, in an article from the Toronto Star back in 2011. You were probably familiar with it. Uh, Is depression Bob Ray's secret weapon? And in the opening paragraph, it says, there's an old American phrase, clear grit, which means the real thing, dedicated and persistent, that quality promote the, that quality promoting resilience in the aftermath of adversity. And here's what I learned, that it's the phrase which inspired the nickname The Grits for the Liberal Party of Canada. After you were NDP premier, and for those outside of Canada, the NDP are traditionally uh, left, uh, further left than the Liberals, unless you're in Nova Scotia. <laughs> but that's a different thing. Uh, why the jump from the NDP uh, to the Liberal Party and eventually to become uh, their interim leader? 
Well, it wasn't actually a jump. Mm. I think I think it was. I mean, uh, starting out. I mean, in the '60s as a young student, uh, I uh, worked for uh, Pierre Trudeau's election as leader, and I did some work for the United Steelworkers in labor law, and I was sort of quite comfortable in that sort of social democratic, mm-hmm. liberal, small l liberal. Uh, milieu. So to everyone's, not everyone, but to my consternation of some of my family and friends, I, I, I went, I worked for the NDP and decided to run for the NDP. And I was elected when I was pretty young. I was 30. Mm. I think I was always seen by New Democrats as, you know, well, he's not really socialist enough. You mm. know, he's not left enough. And I think that's true. I, mm. I wasn't. And so what happened after 95 when the government was defeated and, and I decided that I needed to take a break from politics was that I found, and I think if I'd stayed, it might have been different, but since I left, uh, there really there were very few New Democrats who were ready to kind of really seize the, the day and say, we, we, you know, we're not going to run away from what we did. We're very proud of what we did. But as time went on, it became clear that I was, I was drifting uh, away from sort of the hard left analysis of mm. what had happened and was, and was you know, f- slowly but surely feeling a little bit more, you know, that the Liberal Party was, was where I was more comfortable. I, I continued, by the way, to support and uh, uh, engage with uh, New Democrats across the country. And, and uh, obviously when I left the party, which I did when I joined the Security Intelligence Review Committee, that wasn't like a big, you know, line in the sand. That was just my saying. Uh, I don't think this is actually work that's you know should be tied to a political party. I think it should be neutral. I felt that uh, when you looked at that issue, looked at the issue of sustainability, the environment, um, there's no deep philosophical divide uh, between liberals and New Democrats uh, necessarily depending on the kind of liberal you are and the kind of new Democrat you sure. are. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, when I ran for the leadership in 2006, um, I didn't feel uncomfortable making the arguments that I was making and, and I didn't back away from what I'd done as premier or mm-hmm. you know the, the decisions that we'd made as a government or anything of that kind. And so people say to me, you know, what, you, you, your question was, for those of you who've forgotten what the question was, the question was, did you jump? And I said, no, I didn't jump. I, I walked. And right. I thought. Well, so, and, and I think on that, that might be part of the reason why, at least uh, as far as I can tell, your legacy has evolved into uh, more of a statesman than a partisan, it seems, because you've touched so many different parts of the political system. Now, of course, our politics in Canada are dominated uh, by the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal that is very, uh, very partisan in many ways. Um, with an election coming, that's not surprising. You've I think that I've seen that you've talked a little bit about this. What are your feelings around this entire bucket of issues? Well, I mean, again, at the risk of getting really boring, I mean, I think the idea of a deferred prosecution agreement um, and the is something that's quite common in a number of countries to deal with corporate misbehavior. It's not a, you know, corrupt capitalist plot. Mm. It's actually a sensible evolution of public policy because you want to be sure that you can correct the problem, which is corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you want to be sure that you're going to get a change in behavior and that you're also going to get punishment. Mm-hmm. And the deferred prosecution agreement, which is really a kind of a, a, a plea bargain, if you like, that allows for 
uh, a company to continue uh, without being, you know, completely obliterated, but has certain conditions attached to it in terms of, you know, how how it's supposed to be applied and, you know, uh, what's supposed to happen and how it's supposed to happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I believe very strongly that the the in, in the principle of prosecutorial independence, I believe that ultimately the, the on the on the the prosecution side, the crown attorney side, the attorney general side, uh, the decision and the discretion to apply decisions has to be independent of partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was premier, obviously there's a lot of issues that that the attorney general of Ontario deals with. Um, I never once expressed an opinion about a prosecution. I never once uh, thought it was appropriate to discuss a prosecution with the attorney general. And um, it would have been severely criticized if I had. Mm. So I guess where I'm coming from is to say, let's look at these two principles and figure out how they were applied. So some of the things that are being said, I think, are highly exaggerated. Mm. I think it's very exaggerated to say that there was a deliberate attempt to obstruct justice or to interfere yeah. uh, directly in the application of these principles. Mm-hmm. That isn't to say that I was particularly or I am impressed with how this whole thing has has happened. Right. And I think, in fact, you know, the prime minister has said, you know, he could have communicated things better and he could have done. But I, I, would, I would still say that I, I think it's important for the government to hear, for the world to hear, not just the government, but everybody to hear from the prime minister that he, he gets the principles and he understands them mm. and he would not tolerate any deviance from those principles right. because I think they're absolutely profound. At the same right. time, as a, a very good professor at U of T has pointed out, Kent Roach, when you're you're dealing with the question of should or should there not be a deferred prosecution agreement, it's not at all inappropriate for the attorney general to consult with her colleagues and say, what do you think about this? And right. and for the, the, the decision that's made to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to go down this other path mm-hmm. to say – this is why I made my decision. That's the decision that I've made and this is why. There's an awful lot of blurred lines here mm. about, you know, how and why things took place that I think need to be, you know, and over the course of time, they'll be, they'll be cleared right. up. Well, now, the I, other thing, I, I, just to yeah, complete yeah, the circle, is to say, and again, I'm on the outs on this one, is to say I, I don't, I mean, I regret the decision of, of the Attorney General to resign mm. from Cabinet as Veterans Affairs Minister. I regret the decision of Jane Philpott mm-hmm. to resign very much. And I, I don't think that a caucus has to be unanimous in order to be united. Uh, and I think, you know, I think we, we need to think that, that through. But and, again, well, and what role does party loyalty play there? I mean, two new uh, MPs, right? Yeah, and I think the but the fact is uh, the Liberal Party always prides itself on being a, a big tent, right? And so you say, well, uh, I, you know, I I think it's it, yeah. I is mean, that a downfall though of the big tent? I mean, it's not like this tight Harper Conservative government where everybody needs to toe the line, right? Uh, but the risk of that is that things like this might happen. Well, there has to be a, there has to be a degree of, as I said, it's not about. Unanimity. It's about unity right. and confidence and trust. Right. I think it's very clear to everybody that some of that, some of that wasn't there. Right. 
And so when that breaks down, as I think I said in a tweet, um, <laughs> you you know that's the key ingredient. That's the that's the key part of the political process. Can mm. can I trust the people that I'm talking to that they will keep a confidence? Can right. I can I uh, be assured that? Uh, I'm not suddenly going to be judged or somebody's going to say, well, I'm going to take a walk if you said this or you right. said that. And I think uh, I think that's part of the problem that the prime minister faced sure. was he had a lot of caucus colleagues and a lot of people within the caucus who felt that they that trust had gone. And, right. and you know, you had public statements from both the attorney general and from Jane Philpott that showed that they didn't have uh, right. a huge amount of trust and confidence. So that that right. that's a real a real problem. But if you say to me, you know, do I think for a moment that the prime minister, you know, that what happened was a scandal or that uh, the prime minister tried to do something that was, you know, illegal mm. or, you know, completely wrong, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that view. Now, the alternative, of course, is that um, we go back to a conservative government. An NDP government doesn't seem very uh, likely. So how damaging is this for the Liberals in the coming election? And I think people do need to appreciate that this is probably being blown up as a scandal, not because it's not um, wrong. It does sound like there's some issues here, but because it's it's approaching election year, right? This is this is what the conservatives and other parties uh, need to be doing, it seems, in this time. So are they are the liberals in the woods again, uh, or can they survive this? This is a podcast about resilience at all. after all. I think it is a test of resilience. Mm. I think that's exactly what it is. I think the prime minister has a lot of resilience. I think mm. he has a lot more than, than people realize. I mean, people forget that he went into the last election in third place right. uh, in some polls right. and um, wasn't phased by that, wasn't phased by the fact that, you know, the numbers didn't didn't move quickly, but they did move quite mm-hmm. substantially in the course of the election. And I think, uh, I think anybody who says the election is over, the conservatives have won. Right. You're just not thinking things through. Right. I think the, but it is a test of his resilience, and I think it is a test of his his ability to really connect and, frankly, to reconnect with some people who are mm-hmm. who are obviously you know rethinking. If you look at the polling numbers, I'm not saying anything that isn't in the public no. domain. Yeah. The polling numbers show that uh, you know he and Mr. Shear are very close on best mm-hmm. for prime minister numbers. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, what happened the last time was that his numbers grew substantially when it came to be looking at you know who's best for mm. best for PM. Mm-hmm. I I will be supporting Mr. Trudeau in this election, and and I believe that he should that he should be continue to be the prime minister. What does Prime Minister Trudeau need to do to regain the trust of disaffected liberals, progressives uh, who have been? been uh, impacted by this? Well, I mean, I think the government has is has been and is a progressive government. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at the the battle that we're fighting on climate change, uh, the, you know, the very necessary public policy changes that we need to make in order to get us on the right side of sustainability. Um, we, you know, as a country, we have not always performed as well as we need to on the question of sustainability and, uh, and making our economy more um, less polluting and mm. more efficient and uh, dealing with those underlying issues. There's no question we face a, a, a massive crisis globally. And the frustrating thing for anybody in politics today is that you can do a lot in one country, but unless you've got general movement in the right direction, uh, we're not going to be, be moving quickly enough to, to deal mm. with the extent of the crisis. But I think it's important for Canada to be on the right side on this issue. Yeah. Uh, so... I think the more he talks about 
the things that he's doing and the things that he believes in, the better off we'll be. You know, that's not actually all that un- uh, all that different from mental health recovery as well. In a, that might be a bit of a Herculean loop back to what we were originally talking about, but, but appreciating that nuance in yourself and that you're not always going to be happy, you're not always going to be sad, that it gets better, sure, and there's going to be tough times, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag, and that's what it is. That's, if, if you're prepared for that going into it, it makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the, th- one of the things that, I mean, years ago, I can remember my therapist saying to me was, he says, look, you know, Bob, you know, you, you are uh, probably over, overly sensitive to some things, um, and you've, you know, you've got yourself in a, in a box that you're having difficulty getting out of. You will get out of it. You will do it. You will be able to do it. Um, but you need to know that um, you're never going to be a totally insensitive person. Mm-hmm. So um, you—that's the way it is for you. And so you got to live with that. And, and you make it your strength, actually. And actually, you do because you learn how to listen to people, which is something I'm still working on, <laughs> according <laughs> to my, members of my family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So what's next for you, Bob? You're not going to retire, are you? No. No, uh, never. <laughs> I don't feel like retiring. I'm 70 years old now. Yeah. And, um, you know, I realize when, when people look at me, they sort of say, gee, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're an old guy. And I say, well, no, I don't feel, I don't feel old. Um, and nothing wrong with feeling old. It's just age is what happens to you. Um, but I think um, it was George Bernard Shaw who said, you know, we, it's not that we're too old to play. It's that we, we get old because we stop playing. Mm. And, uh, you know, whether you work uh, for a salary or whether you do stuff, you, you got to keep doing stuff. You got to keep being engaged. I mean, I mean, I'm now a grandfather. I have five grandchildren. So that's a big deal for me. That's like yeah. a huge change in my life. Um, and my, Arlene and I, you know, we really like to see the grandchildren. We like to engage with them. And we're loving watching them grow up. And I mean, they're little now, but they're, mm. you know, they're still growing. So that's part of my life. That's like a big, a big part. Um, I think continuing to take an interest in in what's going on around the world. I do some teaching at the University of Toronto. I'm a professor of public policy. I teach law. Uh, I'm also doing some work at a law at my law firm at, at uh, on, on indigenous issues, mm. and I'm trying to write and reflect on a lot of the things that you know that are happening around the world. And occasionally I get assignments, like I was asked to go to, to look at the refugee crisis in Myanmar and make some recommendations to the government. I'm still um, not fully engaged in that project, but I'm still keeping an, an eye on it. And mm-hmm. I've just come back from a trip to Bangladesh that I took about six weeks ago with, mm-hmm. with Arlene. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's a full life. I, I, I like to be busy, um, sometimes probably too busy. But um, I, I like to continue to be engaged. I, I don't want, and I don't think, unless somebody offers me something extraordinary, I'm not expecting to get asked to do some big job. Uh, I think there is a, a point at which you say, well, you know, you're, you're, a, you're of a certain age, so you're going to give advice. You know, you're going to be an advisor. You're not going right. to be on the screen. And that, frankly, is a transition that I started myself mm-hmm. when I was 65. And Mr. Trudeau took over from me as when I was interim leader, and he took over as leader. Uh, and certainly, he was open to my staying, and and I felt that no, actually, it'd be better if I moved on because mm-hmm. he needed to f- he needed to feel that he could fill that space without having somebody second guessing what he's doing or saying, well, why are you doing this? Why don't you do that? 
Um, and I think there was there's always once you've been a leader, even even though I was the only leader for two years, right. you kind of develop views about well, this is how you should do it. Sure. And I, I don't really think that's very helpful to the next person who comes into the job. I, I mean, obviously, I regret in some ways not having been, you know, in the government uh, after Mr. Trudeau was elected. But um, I, I I've, I've certainly found ways to contribute in mm-hmm. other in other ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that's one of the things that uh, I think we we learn about ambition mm. and uh, desperately wanting something. I, I mean, I've met in politics. I've met a lot of disappointed people, <laughs> people who didn't make it to be leader, or didn't get what they wanted, or didn't get the recognition they think they deserved. And so there's a lot of um, frustrated and and sometimes unhappy people. Um, because they are, they've made the mistake of applying their ambition to one thing, mm. saying, I got to get this job, or I've got to be named to cabinet, or I've got to become the leader. Or I've got to be healthy or normal or happy. And so you got to look at it and say, you know, there are lots of different ways to contribute. And, mm. and you got to figure out, you know, how can I contribute and stay positive? Because uh, the negativity that attaches to frustrated ambition is huge. Mm. And I think it's one of the leading. Uh, occupational hazards in public life, particularly, but it, it affects other people too. I mean, mm. you know what what uh, the famous American psychologist William James called the the bitch goddess success is something you got to be careful not to be worshiping at that particular altar because yeah. it you you succeed in different ways, and um, I I'm not ashamed ever ashamed to say that I've failed at some things and I've learned from my failures. And you learn more from your mistakes and your failures than you do from your successes. Are you happier with yourself now than that graduate student who is just first starting to struggle? Way more. Yeah. And I think people who, who, who watch me, I mean, a reporter, Jim Coyle, who um, uh, is, you know, a very wise observer of the of the political scene. And he was he was at Queen's Park for many, many years. And I saw a column that he wrote a while back saying, you know, it's it's interesting to watch Bob Ray's sort of political evolution and his personal evolution. And, you know, he's much more comfortable in his own skin than he was when he was when he first came to Queen's Park and even when I was premier. I think that's true. I mean, the thing I regret most about not getting a second term, which is what everybody wants in, the, in this game, um, is that I, I learned how to do the job. I, I you know, I, I was ready for ready for action. And it's very frustrating when, you know, obviously when a lot of what you've been working on gets completely undone mm. by the person that, uh, you know, that takes over. But that's that's life. That happens. Just when you think you got it all figured out, you got something new. Well, you it's right. But you've also got to remember that you can think you've got it figured out. But if the public mm. doesn't agree with you, uh, you're done. Yeah. And that's the nature of, of the political process. You, you can say, I'm better than the other guy. Uh, but people, for whatever reason... People might say, "No, you're not," right. and you've got to accept that. That's that's the judgment of the people. Right. So, what would all of this wisdom that you've gained now that you're the sage <laughs> that you've moved on to that point in your life? What would you have recommended to that uh, struggling graduate student Bob Ray uh, that you hope would make his life a little bit easier if you could go don't back? Don't be hard. In time? On, don't be hard on yourself. Yeah. Give yourself a break. And uh, I mean, the thing I learned was I was very focused on. You know, I was having difficulty you know, going down an academic path and, and over time, you know, the therapist and all the other things that I went through sort of said to me, maybe that's not your path. 
Hmm. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe, maybe that's not where you really want to be. And you've assumed for a while that it is. You've created this world for yourself, and now you, you're judging yourself because you're, you know, you're having your challenges. And and maybe that's not who, who you really are. And so what I always say—it's interesting because I was just meeting with a bunch of road scholars in uh, last week, and uh, they asked me that question. They said, "What would your what would your advice be to, to us?" And I said, "My advice would be: don't box yourself in. Keep learning and." listening and watching and be prepared to make some mistakes. And, and when you do make mistakes, don't be too hard on yourself. Give yourself a break. And, and you got to learn how to love yourself, not in the narcissistic way. Uh, and narcissism is another occupational hazard of politics, uh, <laughs> God knows. Uh, but um, in a way that says, I, I'm, I, I like myself. I, I am, I'm a believer in what I'm trying to do as a human being. Uh, and even though we all make mistakes and errors of judgment and, and, and do stupid things, don't ever go down a path that says, well, now that, means it's, that means it's all over for me or I can't see my way out of this mm. thing. And sometimes the, 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 um, the problems are literally all in your own head. Like they're, nobody else is saying, I mean, you, you, you sometimes say, you know, I'm feeling tremendous pressure from, you know, my parents or anybody else. And I remember my father saying to me, I don't care if you get a PhD. I don't care if you teach in a professor in a university. I don't, mm. I, not, don't pressure for me here, buddy. You know, do what you want to do. And, and, and it's sometimes it's really hard to figure out what you want to do because you're, you're all kind of wrapped up in, in anxiety and demands on yourself and pushing yourself that make it harder to do that. And so I, I, think, I think the main thing is to, is to one other thing, and that is, um, Learn how to see your life project is not about you. It's about something bigger than yourself. So whatever it is you're trying to do, make it about something that's not just about you. I don't know if, I mean, again, this may sound too academic, but you know, John Stuart Mill wrote an autobiography. He was probably, you know, he's a brilliant kid, spoke like five languages when he was five years old. You know, hugely brilliant mind. Um, but he was emotionally undeveloped, and he discovered that. He went into a huge depression when he was in his early 20s, uh, and it took him a long time to come out of it, and eventually he did, and he wrote about it in his autobiography. And one of the things he learned was that you don't, you're not going to be happy by trying to be happy. Mm. You're going to be happy by devoting yourself to a cause and to ideas and to people that go well beyond you. So I find, for example, I found this in politics, that one of the greatest therapies for me as a politician was being in my constituency office and listening to the worries and concerns and anxieties of other people mm -hmm. and engaging with other people and actively engaging with them. I find that in my teaching as well. I find that being engaged with teaching students and talking to them and not just lecturing, but, you know, going out for a coffee or sitting down and talking to them and, and listening to either them, you know, alone with other people and, and just talking the issues through that, that they're thinking about. Mm -hmm. That helps. That's therapy. That helps. That helps me. You know, that helps something I enjoy and appreciate being able, being able to do. Well, you, um, do you do a great job of it. And, and I think it, I think it's, um, it, it's good, you know, for, if you can do that.
And and so I, you know, those are the two things I say. Don't be hard on yourself and don't think it's all about you. Sometimes people say to me, I want to be the leader. I want to be prime minister. I mean, I have people come on, you know, I want to be prime minister. And I always look at them and said, why? What do you <laughs> want to do? Mm. You know, somebody who says, I want to be prime minister, it's like, yeah, okay, it's a job. It's, it's you know, you got to, how do you persuade other people that you should be? Not by saying it's all about you, yeah. but by saying it's all about trying to do something, having a, a set of issues and policies that you want to put forward that are bigger than you are. Right. And I, I think that's how people distinguish between, you know, raw, naked ambition right. and the kind of purposefulness that you need to have to lead a productive life. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's a big distinction. Well, we have to wrap up, but I guess my last question, do you, do you want to be prime minister? <laughs> prime Minister Bob Ray? <laughs> I would have liked to be would prime have, minister. Have, yeah. I had a lot of things I would have liked to do. Um, it's not an uh, an appointed position. No, of course. And right now, it's it's not a vacant position. So <laughs> currently <laughs> occupied. <laughs> well, Bob, thanks so much for coming in. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, if you want to try some free psychotherapy, <laughs> you can have a free trial. Free trial of online, safe, effective uh, uh, psychotherapy with trained professionals. Head over to betterhelp.com slash mark. Enter the promo code M-A-R-K and you can get a free trial of betterhelp.com uh, psychotherapy. Uh, that's it for me. I'm Mark Hennick. This has been So-Called Normal. Normal.